Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Dr. Scott Brethwaite. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Scott is has a PhD as well as a master's, I believe, in clinical psychology from Florida State, a BS in psychology from BYU. He is here at BYU. We're in his office, and we're going to talk about a couple key topics that he's recently shared. One is about faith, um, a presentation titled Help Mind Unbelief. He talks about the Fowler stages of faith, and also we're going to talk about suicide, a presentation that he has called Chase Darkness. As our listeners know, these are two tender topics that we often talk about, and Scott has some great clinical expertise and professional expertise on both of these topics. Um, we referenced Scott in a podcast, episode 144. Janice Spangler talked about faith, and it's our highest listened podcast with over 10,000 listens just on SoundCloud. So that's probably 30,000 listens total. And I wanted to get um, Scott on the podcast because he has some real expertise here. Is that a fair introduction? Yeah, that's great. Will you tell our listeners what you do here at BYU? Yeah, so I'm a professor of clinical psychology. Um, and so as a professor, I teach, I do research. A lot of my research focuses on um, marriage, uh, how to both prevent um, problems in marriage and then how to make sure that we get our best interventions out to the people who need them. But also I have um, training and do research in preventing suicide as well. That's great. How long have you been here at BYU? It's been a while now. I got hired in 2010, so it'll be 10 years here pretty soon. You don't look old enough, Scott. Oh, been thank here you. 10 years. <laughs> Um, Scott and I have something in common. We've um, been um, bishops in our wards. I've been a YSA bishop, been released for a few years, and Scott's just completing a, a bishop assignment in his own ward. So thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Um, let's just dive right into these two topics. Let's talk about help thine unbelief, the Fowler stages. And I'll kind of just turn it over to you to talk to our listeners. Yeah, so the... Sometimes I think when we talk about faith crisis, uh, you usually hear from incredible scholars, um, people like Richard Bushman and Spencer Fluman, and, and, and they do such good work, and I'm so grateful for it. The thing that I feel like um, maybe is is missing a little bit or something that maybe I can make a contribution about is just the psychological aspect of this, because when it comes down to it, um, a faith crisis is often about expectations that we have and those expectations not being met. Like that's, I think often what's at the root of it is that we have an idea that the church should be a certain way or the narrative ought to be cleaner and tidier than sometimes it may be. And so trying to understand that and trying to illuminate how we can think about that in a way that allows us to have faith that is vibrant and flexible and alive, I think is really valuable. Um, the way that I think about this is through just this concept that I call simple stories. I think that as human beings, we we crave a couple of things. We crave group membership. We want to be part of a group. We want to feel like we belong. The second part of it, though, is that we really like things to be clean and tidy. And so anything that happens in life, anytime that we're in a in a social interaction or something, there's always two parts to that interaction. There's the facts, I guess you could say. And then there's the stuff that we make up about the facts, but we don't see those two parts. We tend to just believe the story that our mind creates. And that story tends to be simple. It tends to imagine other people 
in a way that's not very complex. Um, and sometimes it can be a little bit self-serving. And so just an example of that would be if you send a text to someone, um, and they don't respond back for, let's say, an entire day, you'll start to tell yourself stories about why they're not responding. And they could be something along the lines of, well, they, they don't like me, or they're intentionally trying to, like, you know, mess with me, or something like that. That's the story part of it, right? And often when we get the full picture, we're kind of like, oh, I might have defaulted to something that was more negative or more problematic than may have actually been true. That's what psychologists deal with. And I think that this definitely happens when it comes to matters of faith, that a really common narrative that I hear, um, kind of both in my experience as a bishop and then also just as a psychologist who ends up dealing with these issues, is someone who comes in and says, I, I grew up my whole life in the church. I did everything the way that I was supposed to. I went to seminary. I was a star student. But then I hear about that Joseph had more wives than Emma. And it's the first time that I'm hearing it. I'm in my twenties and I'm really, really upset because it feels like the church has been intentionally misrepresenting the whole truth. And it really bothers me. So uh, to me, again, that's a problem where I think understanding just people and the way that people work and human psychology can be really helpful um, because different people are going to respond to that information differently based on the expectations that they bring to that scenario. Yeah, that's helpful. I think about the text. I'm in the middle of one of those texts right now where I'm trying to figure out what's the full backstory is of an unanswered text. It's very helpful. And that's sort of part of my journey as I was not aware of some of the complicated issues in our church history that became aware of those later. And that kind of is unsettling. And I think it's unsettling to others. Yeah. Keep talk, keep just sharing more about this and about, um, the typical journey some Latter-day Saints take through um, the Fowler stages of faith. Yeah, so um, I think Fowler stages of faith is helpful because it it gives us language to talk about um, where we are and where our expectations are. And then I think that those stages of faith actually map really well onto something that Bruce and Marie Hafen have been talking about for a long time. They, they gave a devotional long time ago at BYU-Idaho, and then more recently they wrote a book called Faith is Not Blind, where they kind of revisit this issue. Um, and I think that the fact that these two line up so well uh, perhaps makes a case for how they could kind of hold water and help us in understanding this. So Fowler's first two phages I don't think are that interesting necessarily because they relate more to the fact that he was into Jean Piaget, who's a cognitive and developmental psychologist who kind of just thinks about how kids grow up and where they start to make sense of good and evil and, and the idea of right and wrong. Where I think it starts to get interesting is at stage three. Stage three faith, according to Fowler, is where we have a very simple story about our faith, that there are clear good guys and clear bad guys. The good guys are usually us. The bad guys are everyone else. Sometimes we just call them the world, right? <laughs> and keep in mind, Fowler was not LDS. Fowler was um, a theologian who worked at Emory University, and also he was a Presbyterian minister. And so he had a flock of his own. Or, I'm sorry, he was a Methodist minister who had a flock of his own. Um, but he had seen this kind of clinically in, in his ministry as a someone who was like, you know, leading a congregation, but also as someone who studied faith. So this whole us versus them mentality, you know, that's something that shows up in a lot of people's faith traditions. It also tends to just have really clean, tidy stories. So um, the, the church is typically very benevolent and doesn't make mistakes. 
um, the people in the church, the people who lead the church are, you know, demigods. They do everything just right. They make very few mistakes, if any. Um, and so what, what can be difficult about a stage three faith is that it's a very tenuous place to be when you get confronted with something that complicates that narrative. So if some fact comes along where you're like, wait, this doesn't fit the clean good guys, bad guys narrative, it, suddenly everything could get thrown into a tailspin. Now, what Fowler found is that if someone found discomforting information, that their first reaction usually wasn't to jettison their faith. It was to say, oh, well, that's just anti. That's just antagonistic information that I don't really need to address. But for a lot of people, it, once enough of that kind of piles up and they start to actually reckon with it, they realize that I need to address this issue and I don't feel well equipped to do it because my simple narrative, the story that I had about everything being clean and neat and tidy has now fallen apart and I don't quite know what to do. So that's where uh, we enter stage four, and this is where we kind of get the term faith crisis. And I understand that uh, a lot of people prefer the term faith transition, yeah. and I'm totally kosher with that. Like, I'm good to use that term, but Fowler would call this a faith crisis. And he uses that word advisedly, I think, just because this is a situation where this thing that has formed the bedrock of their life has now evaporated. And usually it's not even just that they wonder if their faith tradition is still true. They kind of wonder if you can know that anything is true. It's like they become just this unmoored kind of ship that is trying to make sense of the world and they feel really tossed around. And so I think you can spot when people are in a faith crisis because they're typically just in a lot of pain. They won't always talk about it as being in pain. They'll often be a little bit thin-skinned, at least it will seem thin-skinned, maybe to someone who's still in that faith tradition, because when we kind of like promote the narrative in a church meeting, they'll kind of be like, that, but that's not quite right. You know, like they'll kind of want to give voice to the fact that that narrative's not working for them anymore. But I think understanding that that's their experience makes it easier to have compassion for them because they're not mean-spirited, evil, antagonistic people. You know, like Elder Uchtdorf taught us, they're not just people who want to sin or who are trying to find a way out of faith. They're in a lot of pain. And if there's anyone in that room who needs to be loved and ministered to, it's this person who's in a lot of pain. And the only way typically that they'll express it, though, is just how this prevailing narrative just doesn't work. What I think is to me, it feels sad. Although I, uh, let me be just really clear up front that people who leave our faith tradition, I really don't think that they're these terrible people or people who just want to sin or that they're lazy or any of those things. I think that they are often some of the best people that I know, and I really love and respect them. But what I, what I think can be really painful is if you stay in a straight stage three mindset, that's very binary where there's just good guys and just bad guys. But during that next phase, this transition of faith, the stage four, that they leave their faith tradition. And instead of kind of becoming more nuanced, they stay in that stage three mindset. It's just the good guys and the bad guys change. So then, then the faith tradition, those people, the church becomes the bad guys. And everybody who's kind of revealing the the ugliness of that faith tradition kind of becomes the good team, right? It's interesting. So they end up staying in a very binary stage three worldview. They've just kind of switched teams because I don't know that they're going to find as much relief from from staying in that kind of binary mode. And so even though they're out, I think that they're still out, but experiencing a lot of pain or at least that a lot of their 
kind of experience around issues of faith is just so negatively charged that I don't know that that's good for anyone. So agreed. Yeah. So what, what Fowler, I think kind of hopes for is that instead of staying in stage four, where you just feel unmoored and, and really, um, adrift that hopefully you can move into what he calls stage five and, and stage five faith is one that tolerates complexity. It can live with ambiguity. And in some ways, I think it's just comfortable with the idea that faith is faith. I feel like it's easy sometimes for us to get into the habit of describing faith as being perfect and pure knowledge. But one of our most foundational texts, Alma 32, makes a really clear differentiation between what it means to have faith and what it means to have perfect knowledge. And sometimes I think in sacrament meeting, we bear testimony as if we have perfect knowledge. And perhaps some people do. I don't. I have faith, right? I have faith. I really hope for things that I can't yet prove, but that I believe are true, that my experience and the the spirit within me makes me believe that they're true. But I don't know in a, in a perfect way. I haven't seen God, you know, but, but sometimes that almost becomes the standard of what we have to say when we bear testimony. Um, stage five is comfortable with faith. It's comfortable with what Hebrews says and what Alma says, that it's an assurance of things that we hope for, for which we don't have evidence. And so stage five faith doesn't necessarily resolve every issue that someone has, but they get to a place where they're more settled with the fact that maybe I don't get clean and tidy answers to everything about faith. Maybe I don't get that to everything in life, right? And so stage five faith is a little bit more, I think, in line with what the scriptures teach about faith. But perhaps sometimes as a culture, we drift away from that and we talk about faith as if it's perfect knowledge. And then stage six uh, is kind of his last one. He says, very few people reach this stage. It's like your Martin Luther King Jr.'s, your Buddha's. You know, these are people who are unusually settled and they kind of devote their life just to trying to bring about some important social cause or whatever. Um, I think three and four and five are the ones that most of us experience. And Fowler would say um, that he thinks that most faith traditions and most people within those traditions spend most of their time and their life in stage three. From my perspective, I think we just generally as a body of people, most of us were pretty contentedly in stage three until the advent of the internet. And I think that the internet disrupted that equilibrium and made it so more people needed to reckon with these issues. And although that's a painful thing to do, I don't know that it's a bad thing for us to do. So that's very helpful. Um, a couple questions come to mind are, are these progressive in the sense it's better to be in four and five than three or are they, cause they have higher numbers and sometimes we assign progression or all meant to be the same and not meant to judge people in different stages. I think it's an interesting question because I, I suspect that Fowler would kind of say that there is a progression to it. I know that Bruce and Marie Hafen and their taxonomy, they, they call their three stages. Oh, I want to make sure I get this right. I think that they call it um, simplicity is like their stage three. Complexity is their stage four. And then the simplicity beyond complexity is their, their last stage. And at least in the, the devotional that they give, that they, they talk about that it probably is better to step up to more complexity simply because simplicity puts you in a position where you are vulnerable. Because if you have a very clean and tidy story that's very perfectionistic, it's likely 
that that story will be unsettled because we live in a fallen world with complexity that our religious, you know, church institutions are mediated by wonderful, but human people. And as a result, you're going to see some human fingerprints, even on divine manifestations. And so perhaps there is something good about moving up toward complexity. I'll tell you my own view on that. It's that if someone is in a stage three place, I'm in no hurry to try to unsettle them or shake them up. Um, I don't know necessarily that I'm doing good work if I do that. But what I find is that people will naturally move and make progressions at the time in their life that it's right. And I'm eager to be there to help them through that transition so that they can have as much support and love as is possible. But I'm not one who's ever trying to go and rattle people's cages and make that happen. Cause I don't know that trying to introduce that when it's not happening naturally is going to be a helpful thing to do. Uh, I like that answer. Talk about if I'm a priesthood leader, release society leader, or have stewardship responsibility. And I'm, and I'm working with someone that's a stage four, and I'm a stage three, whether I know it or not. And it, may, it and I'm guessing that I may lack the tools of a stage three person to help a stage four person at times. What advice would you give to people that perhaps are trying to meet the spiritual needs and create space for stage four people? Yeah. I think the most important thing that you can do when someone is experiencing a faith transition is spend time with them in a way that you don't have an agenda that you're trying to push onto them. Because part of, I think, their distrust of the church is going to be that they've just had a lot of people who have kind of preached at them, that have borne testimony at them in a way that didn't feel uh, spiritual or loving. It felt um, corrective and it felt even sometimes coercive. And I think the best thing that you can do is sit with them in their grief and listen to them. Just really go in there and say, I just really want to understand what you're experiencing and, and what about all of this is not working for you. Not so I can fix you, but just so I can really, really get in your skin and understand what the experience is that you're having. I think in general, if you're someone who loves someone else and they, they have an experience that you haven't had, that if your default position is, I'm just going to become a really, really good listener. And I just really want to actively listen to what you're saying so that I can understand it better. Usually whatever needs to happen next, you'll figure that out. If you don't go in with an agenda, but you go in only with a desire to really, really listen. Talk about listening is just a therapeutic, therapeutic principle. Um, I assume they're just that can in itself um, accomplish all that needs to be accomplished just by listening and holding someone's pain and validating that pain, even if you don't feel the same way. And, and maybe it doesn't even create a bigger wedge. Um, it decreases the wedge by just honoring that those feelings. Is is there research that sort of backs that up or? Yeah, there's a whole school of psychotherapy that's really rooted in that idea. It's a, you know, it's it's not outdated in terms of that being out of fashion, but it's just a little bit of an older way perhaps of thinking about this. But Carl Rogers was a humanistic psychotherapist who his whole theory of change is just by holding up the mirror to someone, by reflecting back what their experience is and not being directive at all, that that's going to provide a really helpful environment that allows them to move toward progress and growth because he believed that humans instinctively move toward progress and growth. And so what you need to do is just to reflectively listen to what their experience is and to help them kind of clear out some of the clutter and maybe 
conceptualize and make sense of their experiences, but that that was sufficient. Many other people think you need to add some other elements, but I think at the root of any kind of good psychotherapy is really, really good empathic listening. The trick is it has to feel real, meaning you can't fake empathy. You can't fake that I'm really sitting with you in this moment because I care and I want to understand you and get in your skin. There's nothing that will make it work less well than if there isn't that kind of an alliance where it's like I trust them and I believe that they really want what's best for me. So it has to be genuine. And that's why I think if we want to help people that we love, we can't start from this perspective that says, I'm right, you're wrong. My job is to correct you and to fix you. That's just not going to work. We really have to come in with a love and a humility that's ready to listen. And, and I think that there is a lot of evidence that that can go an awful long way. Talk about um, a marriage where one partner is stage three and one person, one partner is four and five and the, and the potential tension that would exist in that situation in principles or if you were counseling a four and a five here that are in your office saying, we got some tension between, and we both have equal commitment to the church and a desire, our goals are the same, but there's just tension in how we feel about the church. Yeah. Uh, not an uncommon thing for me to see in my practice. Um, one of the things that's helpful and part of the reason why I like to share the stages of faith is because if we don't understand that we're in a different place, if we don't understand that we really have a different worldview when it comes to faith, then what we're going to do is we're going to talk past each other. Because let's say I'm the stage three person. I'm going to say, look, everything in the church just works. So what you need to do is just start reading more and praying harder and being more obedient. And all of this goes away, right? Because that is their way of seeing all of this. And I certainly do think that there's something good about trying to stay close and connected to God, but your reasons for doing that might be different if you're in a stage five place or a stage four or a stage three place, right? Here's the other thing that I would bring up about that. I don't think once you've left stage three that you're going to go back. And I think a lot of times someone who's in stage three where there's these, these clean stories in this black and white worldview they kind of just say, hey, come back. Wasn't it great when we were in the same place? Can't you just come back with me? Um, but I think once that genie's out of the bottle, you don't put it back. That really the best way forward is perhaps to reach stage five to where maybe we don't have the same simple story that we did in stage three, but there's still room for faith. There's still room for us to have faith and to find that common ground of faith, even if we may see the story of our faith just a little bit differently. So I try to help make sure that we can illuminate like where they are and how those assumptions about where they are are potentially kind of like sowing these seeds of conflict and that we're not likely to get anywhere. So in that situation, I just really want them to try to understand where the other person is and um, see what common ground we can find. Again, I'm probably not inclined to push someone in or out of their stage of faith. That's just not what I'm going to be doing as a clinician. Um, but I will try to say, I wonder where the common ground is here, where it is that you two can find that you both feel like you're living with integrity, but also really happy to be together. And that can be a tricky thing to do. Yeah. I mean, if I'm speaking for stage three people married to a four or five, that, that partner may want to talk about the warts on our history or a, a conference talk that's unsettling or a, a past thing a leader has said that we wouldn't say now. And, a, and, 
and some and a stage and maybe I've got this backwards in my mind already a stage 3 person doesn't really want to hear that or um and so sometimes it's hard to find boundaries um just where you can find common things to talk about without triggering each other yeah i it's true i think in stage 3 when we talk about issues that are not that that don't fit the tidy narrative it can feel threatening it can feel aggressive Sometimes that's what's so hard, I think, for folks who are in stage four is just generally they feel alone. They feel like they don't have anyone to talk to because people say, hey, I just don't feel good about having that conversation with you. So sometimes having someone around who maybe has gone through this before can be a really helpful thing. Here's another thing that may not be generally applicable, but that I've certainly seen just in my own life experiences. So for me, um, I my own kind of like questions about faith really, I think came to a head when I was in graduate school. So we were in graduate school in upstate New York, my wife and I, and during this time we were going to the church history sites nearly every weekend because we had family visiting. And so we would go with them and the sister missionaries would be like, Oh, it's the Braithwaite's. Hey, Braithwaite's, you know, they'd kind of see us and they knew who we were. Um, it started to get us really interested in this. I think we'd been interested in a regular way, but we started to get much more interested in it. My wife got a book called Mormon Enigma, um, which is a biography of Emma Smith. And it's a really good historical biography. It's not something that was published through the church, but through an academic press. And so it was the first time that either of us had read something that was I, I, like not coming from a correlated angle. It was just trying to lay out the facts of the history. And as we read it, you know, she was kind of reading it to me and I'm like, I'd like to read that too. So I was reading it. And as we were reading it and talking about it, I remember that we had this conversation where we were kind of saying to each other to stay in the church. Do you have to just either a not know about this stuff or B know about it, but completely turn off your brain, you know, or is the only choice that you have to go. And, and that wasn't, you know, we said that couldn't possibly be true. Like if the church is true, it bears investigation. You can investigate it. And so we decided that we didn't want to turn off our brains and we didn't want to not know about our history. So we decided that we'd go all in. And so that meant a long period of time where we were reading everything we could get our hands on. Um, we'd read all the biographies. You know, you wouldn't just read Rough Stone Rolling. You'd read No Man Knows My History and you'd read, you know, all of the different biographies. So you really have a sense of what's going on. I get that I might be weird in that way. Like as a college professor, that's kind of my way of coping and handling things. Um, but having gone through that experience, when I looked at things really up close, when I got not just to what people said about the book, but when I read the book and when I got into the details and I looked at the sources, there was nothing in there that I feel compelled my belief. There was nothing that said, you absolutely have to believe this. Nor was there anything that said, you absolutely cannot believe this and have integrity. And so for me, that was a really important place to get to where I think that I came through that experience really having faith but it was a different faith than I had. It wasn't so much that stage three faith anymore. It wasn't a simple story, but it's a faith that for me is vibrant and sustaining and that lights me up. I love it. I love this church. I love the gospel and I have a testimony. Um, and I don't think that knowing about those things limits that. I think the most dangerous place to be though is where you just have a little bit of knowledge, where you just have enough that there's kind of this innuendo of like, oh, I'm uncomfortable because I've heard a little bit about Nauvoo polygamy and it just makes my skin crawl. Richard Bushman once, when he was talking about this issue, he said, I think if you have a concern about the church, go all the way in. 
Don't go in just to the level where you hear what other people have said about it, or you've listened to a couple podcasts and now feel like you know everything you need to know. Go all the way in. He's like, because I think if you do, there's reason for faith. There's reason that you can walk out of that with faith. And that's my experience. And so to some extent, if people are in a different place, I'll try to figure out how open they are to really exploring this together as a couple, because my wife and I went through this experience together and it made us stronger and more aligned and, and people who I think have a lot to offer because we've looked down the barrel of what seem like scary issues and they don't feel scary to us anymore. Um, I've seen other couples where one has gone through a faith transition and the other hasn't. Usually the one who went through it said, I didn't want to drag my spouse through the mud. It just made her or him uncomfortable. So I didn't want to do that. But then they end up miles apart. And so I think that to some extent, if you have questions and concerns, not trying to shield your partner from that is maybe a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing to be able to walk this path together the whole way through and not to wait until you have such a chasm between you that you're not sure how to bridge it anymore. I think that might be a good way to go. I feel like going forward as a church, we're going to do a better job at raising these issues before it comes to the moment of a crisis for someone. But right now we're in this transitional phase where figuring out how to navigate that as a couple can be really tricky. That's really helpful. And um, I think, you know, if I'm, in your ward and and talk to you as my bishop, you're not a bishop anymore, and and bring up some of these complicated things from our church history and the fact that I don't surprise you with anything, that you as a priesthood leader know all this and know what's fact and what's not. I think that's one of the challenges sometimes when our priesthood leaders aren't aware of the essays or aren't aware of or haven't read the book Saints to kind of know the facts of our history. So then they don't really know how to help a member. So I love, and I love the people in my life like you, Dr. Brethwaite, that have a testimony of the church and fully know everything. I think that's really important for our millennials to have adults in their lives, priesthood leaders, parents that know all this complicated stuff and have researched it and have come out the other side um, believing in committed members, which I believe is very possible um, because I believe in our restoration and the restored doctrine that came through that. I want to talk about suicide, but I just want to see if you have any more thoughts you want to share on this topic. Because um, we could do two-hour podcasts just I'm, on yeah. this. Yeah, no, I'm sure we could. No, I agree. I don't know that you have to go down the exact road that I went down where you just read everything you can get your hands on, although that's a great way to go. <laughs> but I think if, if, especially as leaders in the church, we're familiar with the gospel topics essays. Yeah, that's probably, yeah. It's an important thing to do. Great and important talk by um, Elder Ballard. It's been a few years ago now that he gave it, but he essentially said that the game plan that we've had for so long, we need to shift. It used to be that we would just, if someone asked a hard question, we would say, don't worry about that. Or we would bear our testimony to avoid having to engage the issue. He says, those days are gone. Now we need to know our stuff and we need to engage in these questions that people have. We need to dignify their doubts and make sure that we give them, um, not the message that having those questions makes them bad, but that those are reasonable, thoughtful questions that deserve a thoughtful answer. And I think that making that transition is really important for all of us to do. I like that. And you priesthood leaders or young men's, young women's leaders that are listening, um, I like what um, Scott said is that maybe all you need to do is just know the gospel topic essays. I haven't done what you've done as far as read all the primary sources of everything. 
Um, I'm pretty comfortable with the general narrative um, and stay a believing member, but I really like what your suggest is, and I love Elder Ballard's talk. Gone are the days, you know, I remember that very talk, and I've yeah. thought about that from a parent's standpoint. Any thoughts for parents? Is there, you know, we've kind of talked about this from a leader's standpoint, but you've, you know, if you've got parents, when do you start talking about gospel essay type topics to your kids at home? Or do you just say that's the church's job? <laughs> I definitely don't think it's the church's job. <laughs> I didn't job. think you'd say yeah. that. <laughs> I also don't think that, um, you know, the way that we're moving, and I think it's a wonderful thing, is that we're home-centered and we're church-supported. And so I think that that really matters when it comes to these types of issues. I think if people um, stay you know, up to date with, like you say, the church is putting out wonderful resources, like not only the gospel topics essays, but the saints books that are coming out. And I think if you read these as a family, if you incorporate them into your study at the right age and at the right time, there's nothing I don't think about what you learn that is so problematic that you need to shield anyone from it. Uh, you know, I've, I've said before, and I think that it's true that I don't think that a hat and a seer stone is any more bizarre than an angel in gold plates, right? Like it's right. all, it's all fantastical stuff. That's what makes it miraculous. Right. And so I think it's more so a matter of that people don't have the feeling that they hadn't been given the whole story up front. So I think if as parents right up front, when we talk about the first vision, we say there were actually multiple accounts of the first vision. Let's read all of them. And let's talk about what we learned from each one. Let's talk about why perhaps this one has some details that the other one doesn't. Who was the audience? What was going on in Joseph's life at the time? Why might this be important? Admittedly, you have to do a little bit of homework, but I think that's good for everyone involved. And I think raising kids is one of the most important things we can ever do. So it's worth putting a little bit of effort into. I like that. And I like everything you've said. There's no fear. You know, when you talk, there's there's no nervousness in your voice as you talk about these issues. You just own them. And talk about them with such faith and confidence and instead of feeling uneasy about them. And I think that projects a feeling of confidence on if we can do that as leaders and parents and and talk about the things you're talking about. Any other final thoughts, Scott, before we move on? Oh, you better not let me do that. I'll just go on and on well, forever. So. <laughs> we, we're, I think our listeners would be glad if you did. <laughs> I feel like I'm talking too much as it is. You're a very uh, kind interviewer to let me talk so much. Um, well, let's talk about suicide. I've done a lot of podcasts on suicide. Um, only one sort of was a clinical perspective. Um, adjunct professor Jeff Case, who talked about the remodel you're going to talk about. We've done a lot with parents um, bravely coming on the podcast that have had family members die by suicide. One recently was a, a mother here in Utah County whose husband and oldest son both died by suicide. And they're very courageous and they're kind of my heroes as they'll talk about this subject so that they can share their experience. I think they did the very best they could. Um, so, but as they bravely share their experiences, I think we learn a lot and are be able to prevent future suicides. But you come of, I think you come from this from a not only a clinical and a, a career expertise, but obviously from a pastoral perspective. So just kind of start. I know, I believe you spoke at um, women's conference either. I'm not sure about which topic, but regardless. I've, yeah. yeah, I've spoken about both of these at Education Week. So Education Week, I get yeah. those two confused. So again, it's <laughs> kind of funny that someone who studies marriage also has this background in suicide. But when I um, applied to graduate school, I applied to work with a professor that I was really excited to work with. He switched schools 
But uh, when he switched down to Florida State, where I got my PhD, he was in a different department. So I needed to get into the clinical psych program at Florida State. So I got to apply twice, and that was fun. <laughs> but it ends so up being cur- curveballs. Yeah, it ended up being a wonderful thing though, because I had two incredibly helpful and generous mentors. But one of them was Thomas Joyner, and Thomas is someone who um, I think is one of the premier suicidologists in the country. His story is a very personal one. Um, when he was in graduate school, he was working with Jerry Matalski and studying depression. But during graduate school, his own father died by suicide. And, you know, when you hear Thomas talk about this, it's really moving that he said to me, coming from the South, you know, he's a very Southern gentleman. He said, it, it's a culture of honor. And I saw it as a point of personal honor that I needed to go to battle with the thing that had killed my father. And, and the tools that I use in that battle are science and the neurobiology of suicide, understanding it and trying to prevent it. So working with him was just an incredible, incredible gift. And I got to be a co-author writing his coattails really? yeah, on the That's paper really that, cool. that puts forward the interpersonal theory of suicide. So Kim Manwarden was the, the first author on that, but we, he, he's just very generous with his students. So we all got to be part of that. So, so the, the interpersonal theory of suicide, I think is such a good theory because if you know it, I think it makes you smarter about understanding suicide and understanding when you really need to pay attention and, and help. Um, so it says there's three different factors that, that relate to suicide. First one that we'll talk about is called, um, thwarted belongingness. So this is the idea that you just don't fit anywhere, that you don't have a tribe. You don't have a group that is your own. You feel always on the outside looking in and, and that you don't have people who are on your team or who have your back. The second one is called perceived burdensomeness. And this is the idea that, when you do the calculations in your head, your death is of more worth than your life to the people that you love the most. Um, you feel like you love them and you're a burden to them and it would be easier if you weren't here. Will the, you just say that again? That's really thoughtful. Yeah. The, the, the idea is, is that in, in that state of mind where you're feeling suicidal, you believe that your death is of more worth to the people that you love than your and life. And you even go through a calculation. That's a fascinating word to use. Yeah. And, and when you go through, you know, a logical calculation, the sum of all the positives and negatives conclude incorrectly, I, I would, you know, I would think or, and just that that's where your conclusion leads you. It's yes. Very interesting. Again, it's, it's important, I think, to, to understand that to someone who is not depressed and to someone who is not suicidal, that the, these things sound just completely just unreasonable. Like, of course, your death is not of more worth than your life. But in that state, it's truly how they feel. And and there are factors in the environment that can foster that belief. Um, you know, during Education Week, I talked about this. I think it's just an important point to raise that I think for members of the church who are LGBTQ, they are often in a place where both of these these risk factors are at play. Because if we think about the feeling that they don't belong, a very common thing that I will hear in my office here in my office at church is that they'll say, I'm 100% in, I'm a member of the church. I believe it. I'm also 100% gay. And I just don't know how to make that work. And they feel like they're in between two worlds that they can't feel completely at home in the church because they feel like it, it, it isn't going to work for them. They also feel like they can't completely capture their identity of being gay. 
they're, they're somewhere in between and they just don't have a place where they belong. That's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling that I think all of us know in some way, but I think the way in which they feel it is so potent because it's like this feeling of, I don't know if I belong with God. Now, of course they belong with God, but they, they just don't know how to make all of that fit. And that's a, that's a really difficult place to be. When we think about perceived burdensomeness, I've had clients who have said, my parents have said out loud before they knew I was gay that I would rather that my child was dead than gay. Wow. So in their minds, do they feel like they're a burden? Yes. And they would probably rather die by suicide than come out to their parents. That's a terrible place to be. So I think there's things that we can do to make sure that we don't put people in a position where they feel this perceived burdensomeness and this sense of thwarted belongingness, especially for our brothers and sisters who are LGBTQ. The, the last part of the model is what um, he calls acquired capability. And this one's a little bit harder to talk about. Um, but the idea here is that suicide is such an unnatural act. It goes against every impulse and instinct that we have that to actually enact lethal self-injury, you have to develop the capacity to do that. You have to develop a fearlessness about pain and about death. And that typically happens through previous attempts that oftentimes people will have a pattern where they'll make multiple attempts, that those attempts will increase in their lethality and in their severity, and that that's how people acquire the capability to actually harm themselves in a way that could, that could end their life. And so um, this is why certain professions die by suicide at a higher rate than others, perhaps because they're more acquainted with grief is a term I think that you could even use here, that they're more comfortable with death. Um, one variable here that's tricky is just firearms, that if people make a suicide attempt with a firearm, they will often die by suicide. Um, and so it can be an exception to this rule that sometimes if someone's first attempt is with a firearm, then they will complete. Um, and, and so we just need to be really thoughtful about how we approach that issue and make sure that we're not putting people at undue risk because more people die from firearms by suicide than by homicide. By, by a large degree. And so that's just something that we always want to think about. Um, and then we, we're always concerned about other things, like if people are engaging in what we call non-suicidal self-injury, like cutting or something, that can increase their acquired capability for suicide. And so those three factors, it's at the nexus of all three of them that you get really serious and lethal attempts. To be honest, to be in a place where you just have the perceived burden and the kind of thwarted belongingness, that's not all that uncommon. Those people tend to be really severely depressed and they'll have some suicidal ideation, but they're likely to not move to a direction, direction of making serious attempts until they move up in acquired capability. And so we, of course, want to do everything that we can to minimize all of those factors as much as possible. It's really helpful. What are some, and we, I would like to come back to that, what are some myths that you would just like to share with parents or local leaders or any of our listeners regarding suicide? So the number one myth that I like to share up front is the idea that talking about suicide will plant the idea in their head. It absolutely does not. The single most important thing you can do if you're worried that someone is having thoughts of suicide is to ask them directly, are you thinking about killing yourself? Are you thinking about harming yourself? And oftentimes, like, they'll pause because they don't really know if you're okay talking about this. But if they realize that your concern is genuine, oftentimes they'll feel this flood of relief to be able to talk about it and to say, yes, it's awful. I'm so scared because I'm worried that this could happen. 
And that allows us then to move toward trying to help them as much as we can. But so often we're just worried that if we say something that they won't have thought of suicide and we can plant the idea in their head that is just patently untrue. The single best thing you can do for someone that you're concerned as being at risk at suicide is to ask them if they're thinking of suicide. And would that go for parents, for kids? Uh, absolutely. There's nobody better to do it because your kids know up front that you love them. And so you being concerned and asking about that is going to open up the opportunity for them to talk about it and for you to help them to get safe, to get to a place where they're going to be safe. What if you're a parent uh, that's had some challenge in this area, not a suicide attempt, but just maybe in those first two circles at times, is it a good idea to open up about your own experience as a way to create space for your kids? Or is that hard for the kids to hear that parents might've had some of these same feelings? Um, I don't think there's any problem with doing that. I, I think there are ways of doing it that could be more and less helpful though. I think that if you turn that conversation into being about you, perhaps that's not as helpful. <laughs> we do that as parents sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> but if instead, like you're kind of disclosing that, it serves the function of helping them to know, like, I really get this. And I get this in a way that you might not know how much I get it. I think that that will create a feeling of closeness and, and it won't somehow diminish your advice or your counsel to them. I think that they'll, they'll respect you and they'll love you for not only um, being willing to kind of sit with them in their grief, but to really understand that like you do get me. I'm not completely alone. It helps them to feel like they belong somewhere. I think it's a great Would thing to do. Would that potentially go for a trusted leader? I think so. Uh, you know, I, I can imagine though that sometimes when you disclose something to Let's imagine that you're a Relief Society president who's kind of talking to someone in the ward about this. Um, and, and in that interaction, they feel very safe and secure. But if they share that with someone else, someone else could say, oh, I don't think that's appropriate. Like I could imagine that it could have ripple effects that are not as positive. But frankly, I think that what you're saying to that person in the room is what matters most. And so even though there could be some other consequences where people will have diverse opinions about that disclosure, in general, I think if in that moment you feel like it's going to be helpful or you feel moved by the spirit to share that with them, to me, I would never shy away from that. I would say, of course, that's your experience. You should share it with them. It's meaningful and it's powerful. Um, but I just know from my own experience that sometimes when I've shared something with someone in the room, not so much a disclosure, but just sort of here's how I think about that problem. And they then share that with others. Sometimes that, you know, there'll be a diversity of opinion, but in the end, I'm, I'm more concerned about their well-being than everybody thinking I'm super great. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And I, one of the, somebody taught me along the lines in the last few years is it's better to ask about suicide than a shorter question like, are you willing, would you hurt yourself? Um, and the person teaching me was saying, if you talk directly like you are about suicide, then they know you're safe to go all the way there. They know you're completely safe. And then follow-up questions like, do you have a plan? And sort of stay engaged in the conversation. So I agree. I wish I'd had more training on that. Um, so that's very helpful. Any other myths you want to talk about um, before we circle back to the model? Yeah, I think um, the other myths, there's, there's a lot of different ones. It's just... Thomas, my advisor, has a whole book about myths about suicide where he kind of uncovers these. So you can read those there. I think this is the most important one. The other one, though, is just the idea that if someone um, is bound and determined to die by suicide, there's nothing you can do to stop them. That's not true. A suicidal crisis tends to be very intense, but also somewhat acute in that it's short-lived. 
And if you can get that to pass, oftentimes you can get them to a place where they're going to be okay. Because sometimes people become a little bit hopeless and just say, well, if they're bound and determined to die by their own hands, there's nothing I can do. No, there's a lot that we can do. And so we want to be engaged and involved. I will also just add that the church's resources on this. Yeah, um, talk about that. Yeah, they're at suicide.lds.org or I think at uh, suicidechurchofchrist.org now. Um, really wonderful resources. Like, I, I think it's obnoxious of me, but as a psychologist, I can be a little bit hipstery sometimes about like psychological resources that are put out by the church. But that entire website from top to bottom is just evidence-based and wonderful. And they have really great videos of Elder Renlund talking yeah. about these issues. I, I wholeheartedly endorse that website. And it links out to other really important resources. I do think it's also just great for everyone to know 1-800-273-TALK, which is a national, national suicide crisis hotline. Um, I think it's the best hotline because it's staffed by professionals who are well-trained. Sometimes you have like a local hotline that has lovely, well-intentioned college students, but they don't have a ton of training. I really prefer 1-800-273-TALK, just knowing that so that if someone That's is helpful. in a crisis, yeah, that you can kind of help them. But in general, if you really feel like someone is at imminent risk to fatally harm themselves, you should connect them with resources, maybe help them get to the emergency room or maybe, you know, get their parents involved right away. You don't want to become the junior cadet therapist that's going to try to walk them through it. You want to connect them to helpful resources. How do they find a good therapist? I get messages a lot, um, especially parents of LGBTQ kids saying, I need a good therapist that understands LDS and LGBTQ. Any general suggestions for parents? You know, I, I, I always worry about saying this a little too openly. I'm someone who can be very skeptical of my own profession. I think that there's a lot of variability in the quality of clinicians. And so in general, I tend to prefer that someone gets a referral from someone that they trust. Um, and if you don't know someone, contact me. You can email me and I'll try to give you a referral to someone that I trust or someone that I think you can get really good clues as to what they trust. There's just not a lot of... Um, I just think it's best for there to be a referral if that's at all possible. I like that. That's yeah. a great answer. And I think I had the same answer for a priesthood leader that's looking to get, I had times, that was probably one of the hardest things thinking back as a priesthood leader when I recognized that a YSA needed clinical skills that obviously I didn't have and getting them to the right kind of therapist was a very difficult journey for me. Yeah. Um, at times I didn't ever have a, you know, I finally found some really trusted people and, and maybe like you said, they often didn't have the expertise, but I relied on them as part of my team to get to the right kind of people that could help them. Definitely. Because especially when it comes to like LGBTQ issues, there's a lot of different factors there. And I want to make sure they get to someone who's going to be really helpful to them. That's so important because they're in such a vulnerable place. Um, let's talk about this really resonates me from the LGBTQ people I met. So this is kind of you talking to LGBTQ people. Um, and I sense you, from what you've said, you have a real good understanding and probably have clients that are LDS and LGBTQ. Just what do you say, you know, this is helping you, this is using your expertise to help parents and priesthood leaders that are working with LDS, LGBTQ and I really agree with you. One of the things you said that resonates with me is a lot of the LGBT people I meet with are 100% believing in the church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they almost sometimes they wish they didn't because then it would just be easier to 
not sort of live in this double bind, as someone termed it to me, mm-hmm. as, yeah, they're really gay or they're really LGBTQ, and that's not going to change, and they really love the church, and they're in both these worlds at the same time. So I don't know if you want to take each one of these, um, Dr. Brethwaite, for it, and just talk to talk about these in the context of helping LGBTQ people. Each of the risk factors, do yeah. you mean? Or, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so how do I, if I'm trying to deal with thwarted belongingness and I'm trying to, as a local leader, as a parent, help my LGBTQ member feel like they belong, what do I do? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things you can do. Um, one is just... And this, prob- I'm interrupting here, this probably, I think, the principles I'm thinking you're going to teach here would apply to other groups that may not feel like they belong. So this is probably a little broader, even though we're just talking LGBTQ. Yeah, I think, and maybe others would disagree with me, but I believe that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a church that welcomes everybody. We want all to come unto Christ. That we don't put limits on that. We don't say, well, we'll allow you to come unto Christ if you're if you fit this demographic category, or if you have, you know, Elder Uchtdorf would say, if your testimony is this high. And I think just making sure that people's experience of church feels that way, because it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to create an environment that feels as if everyone belongs here. I want everyone in the pews on Sunday. The only person that I can imagine maybe not wanting in the pews on Sunday is like a serial killer. But that's about it, right? Like, I literally want everyone else there. Um, I want them there whether they're ready to go all into the church or not. I just, I want them there. I think this is a safe place for them to be, or at least I hope it is. I want it to be. And I want us to create a place for them where when they come to church, they walk away thinking, I'm so glad that I went. I feel so loved. I get that I'm not exactly where everybody else is when it comes to these issues, but I'd just like to believe that our church could create that feeling of belonging. I think we as leaders can do an awful lot to make sure that we're not, you know, being judgmental or using litmus tests to try to, to chase away people who don't quite fit. I think everybody fits here in the kingdom of God. Um, so just doing everything that we can to make sure that they feel like if nothing else at church on Sunday, there's someone there who's going to sit by them and put their arm around them and just be thrilled that they're there. Not because they're trying to get some ecclesiastical notch on their belt, but because they really love them and they really want them there at church. So I think that that's one thing that we can do. How do you do that? I mean, if I'm a rank and file member and I share your vision or even the bishop or the release study president shares your vision, how do you do that? Do you give a certain talk in church that um, to help create this? Do you do things on social media? Do you... Just set the example by being with the one. I think you can do all of those things, but one of the most important and proximal things that I think you can do is if someone says something in like a gospel doctrine class that's sort of hateful and homophobic, that you don't stay silent, that you speak up and you kind of say, I think that God loves all of us. Uh, And I understand that the church has standards when it comes to these issues, but I think it's important that we talk about these things in ways that are Christ-like and loving. And that, that'll cost you a little bit of social capital, but I think it's worth every penny. It's a great answer. I know in my own experience, I started to post kind things about LGBTQ on social media and the YSAs were on social media. And I, did, I, I didn't realize what it would do for the straight kids. Mm-hmm. It And, you know, 98% of our ward was straight or 97, I assume. Mm-hmm. And even the inactives or the non-members that were on my social media feed, they just, it signaled to them they could talk to me about anything um, as I publicly showed and shared kind things about LGBTQ. So for me in that 
Moan Life, that signaling was really helpful to create the culture you're talking about. Yeah. Now, 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 that, that may not work for everybody, and not everybody's on social media, but I think it's a principle there that's really helpful. Yeah. Any t- church talks that are, if someone were to give a church talk and wanted to create the culture that you're talking about, is there a favorite church talk or two that they could use to talk about this? Oh, I mean, I think that there's so many that you could. I, I personally think that in some ways it, it does relate back to the previous topic of faith crisis, mm-hmm. just because I think that what Elder Ballard is teaching in that talk that we mentioned, which I think is something like the challenges and opportunities in the 21st century, um, it's changing the culture from one where church becomes about rules. It becomes about virtue signaling that I'm in and I'm orthodox to being a place that prioritizes a feeling of love and connection and worship. And, and so he would, you know, in that talk say, gone are the days when we don't talk about these things. Maybe instead, like we talk about these things. And when we talk about issues where they bump up against LGBTQ issues, we don't pretend like that's not a thing. We just say, you know, I think this could be particularly hard for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. How do we make sure that we consider their needs when it comes to this issue? And just, just bringing it up, just talking about it, not, not pretending like it's such a taboo topic that bringing it up somehow is offensive. I like that. Talk about what we could do to eliminate um, perceived burdensomeness. Yeah, I think, you know, for starters, if if you or anyone that you know has ever said, I would rather that my child be dead than be gay, let's just not never say that. Let, let's let's call that out as just a hateful thing that nobody should ever say out loud, because I've heard it more than once, right? Like, this is not just a an isolated incident. Uh, it's something that I think could sometimes be out there. The other thing is that suicide, the highest rates of suicide are actually among older people. And, and believe it or not, it's older white men who have the highest rates of death by suicide. I think the church does incredible things that as we age, we still feel the ability to make really meaningful contributions through temple work, through missions, through all these things. I think it's just one of the most remarkable things that the church does is that we, we don't feel like we're a burden. We feel like we're an asset to the kingdom of God because we have things that we can give. But if ever you feel like there's someone who feels like they don't have that much to offer... I think it's so critical to let them know that they can offer something to you, right? Or that the the contributions that they make are really vital to your walk of faith. I think about the story that Elder Uchtdorf told about a sister where as she grew older, she wasn't able to really see or, you know, do a lot of things that would allow her to serve. But she said, but I could listen. And so every day I would find someone who I think needed to be listened to and I would simply listen to her. can't imagine what kind of an impact that ministry had on the people around her. And I just think highlighting what people are doing for us so that we, we communicate, you're not a burden, you're an asset in my life. You, you bring a lot of light and love. Um, and I, I want more of it. Come, come sit by me again. It's just, it happens at such an individual level. We can do it at a cultural level. And I think the church actually does a great job with this. When it comes to LGBTQ folks, though, I think that that's a trickier thing where our individual ministry can yield really, really important benefits. Yeah, I've heard some LGBTQ say, well, I'm messing up my eternal family, um, this vision of us all being together with no empty chairs in the next life. Even if they're still on the covenant path, they sometimes think, you know, that's messing up, so I'm I'm ruining my family's plan. And, and if they do step away the church, that becomes even more of a perceived reality in their home, in their mind. Any thoughts about that? Yeah. You know, there was a statement that was floating around on social media, maybe in the last week. Um, 
And it was a quote by Cheiko Okazaki where she essentially says something like, we just don't know enough to judge that stuff. We don't know enough to judge other people. God knows. God has all the facts and he'll be able to do it perfectly. But since we don't, what we ought to do is err on the side of just loving and supporting and trying to help. Because I don't know how all that's going to work out, but I do know what God is like. I know that he loves all of his children, and I know that he's eager for all of us to be with him again. But, but in the end, I guess I can't say much more than that. So I know that the most important thing that I can do is not to say, oh, you, you're doing this or that wrong. You're crossing this or that line. But I can love people and encourage them and support them. And if I just make that my job, and I don't worry too much about who's in and who's out and who's going to be in the chair and who's not. But instead I just love and support and try to make sure that, well, no matter where you are, you're part of my family and I want you, I want you with me. Maybe that's the most important thing we can do. I love that. And I think I've seen that on my Twitter feed and I did a tweet yesterday, sort of along those lines. There's no scarcity of salvation. There's no scarcity of exaltation. Mm-hmm. Um, Christ taught that in the parable when he fed the multitudes, there was always plenty and I think we do get too concerned about who's in and who's out. And to me, getting to heaven is sort of reaching out and bring everybody with me versus trying to sort of isolate myself into this perfect person. To me, heaven is bringing is my relationship with other people. Two final questions um, that come to mind. One is talk to f- family members, parents that have lost a child to suicide. Um, that's a whole nother podcast to sort of take away their pain and their burden and and then the second one, well, I'll do that one, and then I'll see if I can still remember the second okay. one. This is just you talking to family members that have lost someone by suicide. Yeah. I think that the most common thing for those family members is to, they'll always go back in their minds and say, what if? What if I had just done this differently? Am I the reason that this happened? Um, and I think it's so important to understand that as parents, of course, we love and we do the best we can. We don't do it perfectly. But our imperfections are never enough, I don't believe, for us to cause a child's suicide. And so I think it's really important up front to really make sure that they understand this is, this is not your fault. And I think it's so easy to jump to that conclusion because you're, you love this person you've lost so much. And it would be so easy to think, if only, if I just would have done this, but you will torture yourself for a lifetime if you indulge in that line of thinking, I think it's important to understand that suicide arises from a lot of different factors, from a lot of different things that are going on. Um, and, and it's not a simple kind of one note thing that if you have good parents, you don't die by suicide. If you had bad parents, you do plenty of people that I know have bad parents have not died by suicide. Plenty of people that I know with wonderful parents who did die by suicide and it's tragic and it's painful and it's awful. So I think it's just trying to get real about what role you played. Sometimes it might be helpful to have an outside set of ears and eyes like a psychologist to help you make sense of that and to understand what's happening and to help you through that grief. But at the same time, I think what's important is that sometimes the reason people get stuck in grief is because they won't allow themselves to fully grieve, to experience the pain of this. It's okay to to feel the pain of that loss and to kind of talk about what you loved about this person and what you'll miss. It's when we don't do that, that sometimes we get stuck. And so making sure that you, you keep their memory alive by talking about them. And, and then I think that to some extent, it's important to understand the church's doctrine on that, because it's really common for people to think that, oh, well, if someone died by suicide, they can't inherit celestial glory. That is patently not true. 
And I think it's really important that you read what's been written about this. There's a wonderful talk by M. Russell Ballard, again, about this, where he makes it really clear that when we're in a suicidal crisis, that we're not, we don't have our full presence of mind and God takes all of those things into account. So not just jumping to really big conclusions like I am at fault and my child can't be with us in the eternities. Don't, don't get there and make sure that you talk to people who can help you stay away from those things because I don't think either of them are true. Talk to people that are suicidal right now for just a minute or two. People, when they're suicidal, I think the biggest thing that happens is it's sort of like if ever you've passed out, sometimes it feels like your vision closes in and you just have this one narrow window that's open in the front, but it feels like that with everything in life. You feel like you're in this terrible, terrible pain and you can't imagine that you will ever experience joy again. You just believe that's not possible. A lot of times when you talk to people who have made really serious attempts but survived them, when you try to understand their attempts, they just say, I didn't want to die. What I wanted was for this pain to stop. And it felt like that was the only way that I could make it happen. So what I would say to people who are currently suicidal right now is that this won't last forever. This won't be your fate, that you will always feel this way. If you can connect yourself to people you trust who love you, they can help lift you out of this. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And this feeling will persist to some extent, but the acute pain that you feel right now that makes you want to escape, it does not last forever. It never has. It never will. And if you can just reach out to the people around you who love you, even though you think they don't, they do. They want to know about this. You're not a burden. They do care about you. They'll help lift you out of this. That's great. That's a home run answer from everything I know. And and that's just filled with hope. And that's one of the greatest things I think we can give to other people is hope. Um, the last question I'll ask you just came to my mind is, um, what's your favorite doctrine in our church? Is there one just core doctrine that is your favorite? It's a great question. Um, there's so much that I do love about the doctrines of the church. Uh, you know, if we go back to this idea of faith crisis, sometimes in that class, I talk about how I think there's a big difference between kind of what I called cultural Mormonism. I named it that before we weren't supposed to say Mormonism yeah, <laughs> and, and, doctrine, and doctrinal Mormonism. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I wrote that down. I'm glad we're circling back. Yeah. I never asked you because I think what I, what I mean when I say the cultural element is I don't mean that we, we do funny things, you know, we, um, we watch Saturday's warrior and drink Sprite. Like it's not so much that it's more that as you grow up in the church and as you just listen to people talk, you get things in your head and you're like, that's what we believe. That's what's true. And I think some of it is, but I think it's important to differentiate between that and doctrinal Mormonism. So this is the canonized official teachings of our church. It's the things that we believe without any kind of reservation. And, and to me, I don't care as much about how much overlap there is between the two, but I think that the, the fundamental nature of those two things is different. I think cultural Mormonism focuses on rules. It focuses on group membership and where's the line and who's in and who's out and all of that kind of stuff. And, and to some extent, I think what for a lot of people feels painful about the church, it's that cultural element that is sort of people who are trying to figure out like, well, how do I fit in and how do they fit in and what, what's the rule about this? Whereas I think doctrinal Mormonism is vibrant and alive and living and awesome. And so it's so much of that that I love about the church. And so if I had to pick one, I guess it's just that in most faith traditions, when they think about God 
And when they think about the eternities, they think of God often as being a singular male. Of course, we believe that we have heavenly parents and that it's, we have a heavenly mother and a heavenly father. To me, I love that. And it just rings so true to my soul. The other thing is, is that we have heavenly parents who loved us so much that they didn't just want us to live in subjugation to them for eternity and to spend the eternities praising them. They wanted us to have everything that they have. They wanted us to rise to that level of exaltation. And again, to me, that rings true with my own children. I want them to have everything I have and more. Um, because our heavenly parents have everything, they want us to have all that they have. And again, um, in my soul, that sounds just about right. We'll end on that. Thank you, Dr. Scott Brethwaite, brother <laughs> Brethwaite, Professor Brethwaite. Well, Bishop. let's just call me Scott. I'm happy we'll to be Scott. We'll call you Scott. But, um, thanks for being on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. And thanks our listeners for listening. <laughs>